We're going to be in Romans 7, the second half of Romans 7, uh, this afternoon. And so if you have a Bible handy and can get to that, or you want to follow along in the bulletin where the same text is printed, please do. Uh, there's an old Cherokee story that is like many other stories, where an older man is speaking to his son, and he tells him that there are two wolves inside of each one of us. Two wolves. Uh, one is violent and wild and destructive, and the other wolf is disciplined and wise and benevolent. And the old man asks the son, which one of these wolves uh, do you think is likely to win? Which one is going to be predominant? And the son says, I don't know. The old man says, well, it's the one that is fed. The wolf that is fed is the wolf that will win. I guess every culture has some version of this story. Uh, one of the most similar ones that we have is the idea of you've got an angel on one shoulder and the demon on the other shoulder, and they're giving you contrary advice, and you feel the tension of the war within about who you're going to listen to. Um, it's a duality that seems intrinsic to human existence. We all feel it a pull and a war between what we know and believe is right and even what we want to do, and a contrary force that pulls us in a different way uh, that makes us feel schizophrenic very often. Don't know who we really are after all when we feel this kind of conflict and tension inside our very selves. When you become a Christian, of course, this all goes away, right? Of course not. I think when you become a Christian, it gets worse uh, because your conscience uh, winds up being more sensitive than it used to be, and your desire to do what's right gets ramped up really hard because you want to please Jesus and do what uh, shows love to him, and yet that greater desire and more sensitive conscience don't seem to make you any better able to live as the person you think you ought to be, to live faithfully to him. There's a, this passage in Romans 7 is the famous passage in all of scripture about this tension and about these problems and desires where the apostle Paul describes the war within a Christian between uh, who we want to be, who we're going to be, and yet who we still seem to be most of the time. It's the struggle of the Christian life, and that's what we're going to think about together. So let me pray for us, and then we'll here, Romans 7. Father, we ask that uh, you would open our minds and hearts to you as we listen to your word. We pray for encouragement with the discouragement we feel with the war inside of us, and we pray that you would help us and give us hope in believing. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 7, verses 13 through 25. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin." For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. I think most of us are familiar with the uh, Robert Louis Stevenson book, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Uh, at least you know the Looney Tunes version of it. That seems to be some kind of a conflation of mice and men and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. But we all know the story of the conflicted character. Uh, Robert Louis Stevenson was a Presbyterian, so you know, he tended to drill down on things like this internal war that we feel with our conscience and our sense of duty and all of that. Uh, but, you know, uh, Dr. Jekyll was the respectable uh, man who lived a very serious life, a generous life, uh, one in which he was very well respected, but always tried to press down the more uh, licentious and pleasure-seeking side of his personality. Uh, he felt like uh, he was two different people and that he was radically both people. Uh, even as contradictory as he felt, he, think he really is the respectable uh, doctor who helps people, who's generous, uh, but he also is this uh, insidious other personality that he feels at war inside of him all the time. And the tension between these two personalities drives him to his laboratory where he seeks to find a way to separate the two personalities completely and winds up with the potion that allows him to live most of the time as the respectable Dr. Jekyll, but under the influence of this potion as a completely amoral uh, Mr. Hyde, who not only has a completely different character, but even a completely different appearance after he takes the potion. And it's a horror story, right? because in it you see uh, someone's evil side given complete freedom. Hyde is evil and only evil. Dr. Jekyll, on the other hand, is still the good person that he always was, uh, but he also still feels uh, his evil side. So he's conflicted. Hyde is not conflicted at all. He feels only the pure evil. And when we read the story, it's a scary story because all of us can relate to it. The idea that if, if 
who we are in some of our worst moments is given free reign and is unbridled, then uh, what we would become is inhuman and a horrifying version of ourselves. So it's not a very long book. It's about 80 pages if you want to read it. It's fascinating. Um, but it shines a light for me on this, that um, all of us feel what Dr. Jekyll felt. Uh, we all feel the tension. Um, we can't separate our good side and our bad side like he did with the potion. But most Christians that I know, because of this tension, live very discouraged lives. We just feel like, I don't think I'm ever going to change. I don't have much hope of ever changing. Um, I haven't seen it happen yet. I haven't seen it happen in that many people that I know. And so I feel despair about trying to live as a Christian in any way that looks something other than hypocritical. I wonder what is wrong with me. Why am I still struggling with the same things I've struggled with uh, since before I was a Christian? Romans 7 talks about this. Um, I'll admit up front, like I've had to with so much of Romans, that there is a lot of nuance in Romans 7 that I don't fully understand. I've read a lot about it. A lot of people have different views about what Romans 7 is about. Some of them sound uh, like they would be more plausible in a graduate seminar on theology than on the reading of a letter to a church in Rome in the first century. Uh, but on the, on the level of how people would have heard this the first time it was read in church, it makes sense to me to see that Paul is describing his own experience and the normal Christian experience of the struggle of the Christian life between what we want to do and what we find ourselves actually doing. And so I want us to look at this and think about it under two heads. First one is that all Christians struggle. All Christians struggle with sin. And the second is that the Christian struggle with sin is a struggle that is filled with hope. It's filled with hope. So first point is that we all struggle with sin as Christians. Look at what he says in verse 15 and see if this doesn't sound just like you. He says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Sounds like a crazy person sounds like me. Uh, verse 18, in the middle of it, he says, I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Again, this is the Christian life. I have no ability to do what I ought to do. I feel helpless to do what I ought to do. Even though I want to, I find that I can't. And so I feel this split that he describes in verse 22. He says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's not saying that you know, on the inside we're holy and wanting to please God, but our bodies are betraying us. He's talking about this whole tension that we have. Our whole being uh, is alienated from God and rebellious against him you know, by nature. But now as Christians, our whole being, inside and out, is being changed and renewed and fixed and brought home to him. 
but we live in the in between time where we're already new but we're not yet new and we're uh, between uh, Egypt and slavery and the promised land we're out in the wilderness and it stinks to be out in the wilderness because we live with this tension within but what I want to point out to you is that it's normal um, hopefully that helps a little bit you're not crazy you're not defective you're not a fake Christian because you struggle with sin I mean, Paul's best Christian one of the best Christians that ever lived and he's saying that this is his experience and if it's true for him how much more is it going to be true for us he comes down and finally just says wretched man that I am in verse 24 wretched man that I am which kind of sounds like Gollum with his ring right I'm a wretched man I love my precious but I hate my precious I want rid of it but I can't bear to be rid of it it's uh, tearing me up it's diminishing me as a human being but I am torn like Gollum was torn. And again, I think for Christians, it's worse because uh, Christians don't just feel bad about their Edward, Edward Hyde licentious violent deeds. Christians have their consciences trained that we have to repent of our virtuous deeds and our good deeds because we realize that they're shot through with motives that are poisoned. We know that most everything we do is driven by envy and pride and selfishness. And so even our righteous deeds, the Bible says, are like filthy rags. And my goodness, if you feel the tension between Jekyll and Hyde in your life uh, before you're a Christian, it's just going to get worse after you're a Christian because now you've got more things that you realize Edward Hyde does and you realize that Dr. Jekyll really never was the virtuous person that he pretended to be. Um, at the end of that story of Jekyll and Hyde, um, things are getting pretty bad. Hyde has committed crimes that need to be covered up, so uh, Jekyll can't go around in the guise of Hyde anymore, so he's thinking, I've got to stay Jekyll. But then he finds that he can't stay Jekyll. Even without taking the medicine, he keeps turning into Hyde. And he has to take the medicine to turn back into Jekyll, but it works uh, less and less well and takes bigger doses and he's running out of it and so uh, at one point Jekyll's doing pretty well he's kind of kept Hyde under control and suppressed for a while but then he doubles down uh, on his good deeds as Dr. Jekyll and flatters himself and he starts comparing himself with other people and he starts flattering himself and thinking you know about how generous and industrious he is compared to the lazy rabble around him. And he says as soon as that vainglorious thought entered his head, he looked down and he saw his hands starting to get hairier and crinkled because he was turning back into Hyde. Not because he was indulging some violent lust, but because he was indulging vainglory and self-righteousness. And that's where Christians find themselves. You know, we see our evil we see our sinfulness uh, much more clearly as time goes on and so the struggle for us is even more real and more strong so that uh, one very godly puritan uh, described his struggle with sin this way he said even my tears of contrition need to be washed even my tears of contrition need to be washed
And if you feel your sin that deeply, then the war is just awful. It's just awful to feel the tension that you have to feel because of this. Now, if you feel that you're wretched, doesn't that even sound archaic to say? But if you feel that you're wretched, there are a couple of bad reactions you can have to it. Um, one is to gloss over it. To gloss over your sense of wretchedness, as you know, Paul says in verse 24, is uh, a very unhelpful reaction. You know, to just gloss over and say, hey, you know, uh, I try to be a good person and a good Christian. I think I am deep down. And whenever I'm tempted, I just say a little prayer, and that makes everything okay, and I'm able to resist it. And platitudinous Christianity that I'm sure you've never been around anywhere in your life, where if you describe a problem in a small group or a Bible study that you're having, people say, well, maybe you just need to uh, read your Bible more, and then everything will be okay. And you think, you know, not only are you unhelpful and discouraging, you're annoying when you do that. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah called this healing the wounds of my people lightly. He accused the prophets of saying, peace, peace to God's people. He says, when there is no peace. So to gloss over our wretchedness and the depth of our problem that we have with our rebellion against God is not helpful. Um, but you see very often in the church, we try to shut people down with the law. We just tell them what the right thing to do is and expect them through willpower or self-discipline to do it. Where Paul here says, I have the desire to do what's right. I don't have the ability to carry it out. The law can't do that for me. And if you give me these simplistic answers to complicated questions, you're not helping me at all. You're irritating me. If you gloss over your sense of wretchedness, you'll also be likely to be vulnerable to people selling spiritual snake oil and ideas of how you can you know, win the victory over sin in your life and uh, buy into some kind of a scheme of perfectionism in this life where you no longer sin as a human being now, uh, all of which are fallacious and cruel, but there's never a shortage of people who have a new scheme to tell you how you can suddenly be through with the struggle within and live in victory all the time. And that doesn't happen until Jesus comes back. It doesn't happen in this life. And anyone who tells you differently is lying to you. So, but if you gloss over your wretchedness too, you create a church environment where people feel a tremendous need to pretend to a greater obedience than they actually experience. And you have an environment where people are very prone to hide because to be honest about your sin uh, is to invite uh, people's scorn or their glib advice. And so glossing over wretchedness is not the proper response to it. Uh, the other bad response, though, to our wretchedness is to wallow in our wretchedness, which Paul does not do. He takes his wretchedness seriously. I mean, these are impassioned words that he writes. But he isn't crushed by this struggle. He does not let this struggle lead him to despair. It doesn't totally beat him down. Even though he could read what his, he says here himself and fall into despair. To say, 
you know, like he says in verse 18, I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Well, most conscientious people who say something like that would say, so I don't have the desire, right? If I had the desire, I'd do it. For me to say I have the desire and then not do it is a lie. It's a hypocritical stance. Um, you know, you're, you're a duplicitous, lying person that nobody could ever trust. If you say I have a desire to do something, but then you don't do it and say I can't. Um, anybody who thinks about themselves in those terms for long uh, could easily fall into despair wallowing in their wretchedness. When you do that, it makes it impossible to acknowledge small victories, small progress in the Christian life, uh, small wins, uh, which the Lord seems to take great delight in when we have small wins. But it's very hard for us, if we're conscientious, to feel any happiness about small victories because we feel like, in general, we're losing. So, I'm a there, there are no non-neurotic golfers, I don't think. But one of my peculiar neuroses is I don't remember good shots. I only remember bad shots. You're supposed to hit good shots. You're not supposed to hit bad shots. So a golfer who only remembers his bad shots and not his good shots uh, doesn't tend to be terribly happy about golf. Um, but if you wallow in your failures as a Christian and aren't able to take any enjoyment or express any thankfulness for the small victories, then you're treating your wretchedness the wrong way. You're responding to it the wrong way. One thing I've noticed is that um, as you get older as a Christian, uh, your lack of progress becomes um, way more frustrating. If you continue to have to confess the same sins for the hundred thousand and first time, um, it wears you down. And it's one of the hardest and most frustrating things about becoming a more mature Christian is uh, that you can be more discouraged by your behavior. But the other thing about becoming a Christian, having been a Christian a long time and being older, is you do see differences. You do see change. You know, I... I'm not nearly as angry as I used to be. And uh, part of that is, you know, my children are growing. But another part of that is that Jesus really loves me and is really working in my life and is really committed to changing me and bringing me home to heaven, however violent that process is. And time lets you see not only the frustration of the continuing struggle, but time also lets you see that what Jesus has promised to do, he actually is doing. And so hang in there. Um, because what you don't want to have happen is for you to wallow in your sense of wretchedness and let that rob you of any possibility of ever enjoying God. Which easily happens to say, I know myself enough to know to despise myself. And I assume that God, of course, despises me more because he knows me more deeply. And so I can never enjoy him. I can only uh, try to be sorry and ever sorrier when I'm in his presence. And yet, that's not what he calls us to do. He calls us to enjoy him, to take delight in a relationship with him. Knowing full well that Romans 7 is our experience too, we're invited 
Now, because of the free welcome and forgiveness of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, we're invited to enter in now into the enjoyment of God. And if you are not able to do that, you're probably wallowing in your wretchedness uh, in an inappropriate way. The other thing that happens if you wallow in your wretchedness is that you feel like you could never be used by God. You could never be part of his mission uh, in your work or in your relationships with other people. And so you back away timidly from uh, opportunities to speak in Jesus's name or to serve in Jesus's name. And certainly Jesus using people like us to advance his mission in the world uh, is a choice he made knowing full well that we're Romans 7 kind of people. And yet he intends to use us. He strikes straight blows with crooked sticks, as they say. But he's happy to use us. Right? He's happy to use us. When he was talking to Peter, just before Peter betrayed him on the night of his passion, he said, uh, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. But when you're restored, feed my sheep. He uses people like us. Your moral struggles, and I don't say struggle to downplay it, your moral failures do not unfit you from being of use in Jesus' kingdom. Or no one would be useful in Jesus' kingdom. you got to believe that. That's what the scriptures say, but your heart will never tell you those things. So, Here's the deal. You can't, you can't ignore in the midst of your wretchedness knowing that, that Jesus has come to your rescue, that he has made you righteous, he's forgiven you and cleaned you. He's given you a, a future that is certain in which you will live single-mindedly. No, no more Jekyll and Hyde. You'll live single-mindedly, face-to-face, uh, -face, loving him in a world that works. And that's who you are. That's who you're becoming. And the old you, the Mr. Hyde in you, is dying and is dead. Uh, but you just have to live in this mean time that's so awful. So don't gloss over wretchedness. Don't wallow in wretchedness. But the second point um, is that when we struggle as Christians, we struggle with hope. We struggle with hope. Verse 24, he says this question that's not just a rhetorical question. When he says, "Who, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then he answers it in verse 25 and says, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He doesn't say, Who will deliver me from this body of death? I don't know. What are you going to do? I guess I'm just stuck. No, he, he responds with a doxology. Thanks be to God uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Thanks be to God. He has complete hope in the midst of his struggle, that what Jesus is doing in his life is going to work. It's ultimately going to come to a good conclusion. Um, in this sense, if you have hope in what Jesus is doing in your life, to recognize your wretchedness is actually a sign of maturity as a Christian. Like uh, Your conscience gets uh, more sophisticated as you grow along as a Christian. And so because of that, a lot of people who have been a Christian a long time will feel like they're a lot worse person than they were before they were a Christian. But what they really have is just better diagnostics. You know, they understand more the depth of what their rebellion and willfulness means in relationship with God. 
And the idea for us as Christians is, as we come to recognize our sin more deeply, is that we recognize the grace of Jesus more deeply as well. We don't say, I've got to fix myself because I already got mercy when I became a Christian, and now it's up to me to get things right. No, the Christian maturity is to say, I see my need more deeply, but I see Jesus' mercy uh, more deeply as well. So knowing your wretchedness is a sign of maturity if you're able to more deeply appreciate the mercy of Jesus at the same time, to know that his smile over you has not changed, that his forgiveness of you is not in question, that you're not on probation, that he is delighted with you as his child now even though he sees what you see and more. You sort of figure out when you read a passage like this, you know, and see that God doesn't just automatically make Christians holy. It doesn't make us our future self completely right away, but puts us in this struggle process. That God's goal in life doesn't seem to be to flatten the curve of the number of sins in the world and try to make that number lower and lower. Uh, his goal in our lives seems more involved than that. It seems instead that he's trying to teach us to be people who are humble and contrite, who are dependent on him and his mercy. Because leaving us in this struggle, putting us in this struggle, helping us in this struggle, all seems to be bent towards shaping our character, towards greater dependence on him and greater love for him. So, um, this passage, the reason Paul jumps into this bit about the struggle that we feel as Christians is that it's a passage about the law. And he's saying, I don't want you to trust in the law. The law is good. The law is right. Uh, what it says about you is true. But it can never fix you. And when you look at the struggle that you're in in your life, you've got to see that the law lets you down. It tells you what you ought to do. You can joyfully concur with it in your inner man. But you can't do it. You can't keep the law. And so what Paul seems to be saying here is, so stop trusting in the law and stop trying to use the law to change other people. Because if it didn't work for you, it isn't going to work for your children. It isn't going to work for your friends. So uh, our hope for change is not uh, more rigorous adherence to the law. Our hope for change is trust in what Jesus Christ has done for us and is doing in us. Self-discipline is never the primary means of holiness in the Christian life. Self-discipline is never the primary means of how we become holy. Self-discipline matters some, but how, good, how much good does self-discipline do for a person who sees and feels himself in Romans 7? It's hard to put any hope in it at all. So, we all struggle, right? This is the normal Christian life. It is the normal Christian life. You may feel like it's tan you're tantalizingly close to something, you know, on some higher victorious level, but you're not. You're not. This is the way it goes. You struggle. That means that you willfully sin. That means that you betray the Lord that you love. And that's a part of your life as a Christian that you hate, but that is still a part of your life. And nothing about that struggle changes his love for you. 
nothing about that struggle changes his forgiveness of you. Nothing about that struggle changes your righteousness in his sight, where he looks at you as a loved child, clean and pure and acceptable to him. And nothing about that struggle changes the certainty of the beautiful future that you have with God in heaven and then in the new creation. Hyde ran out of, I mean, Jekyll ran out of ingredients at the end of the story and knew that he was going to change back into Hyde soon for good. And so the last part of the story is that he gives up. He writes out uh, an account of his story for others to know, but he knows that Dr. Jekyll, as we know him, is gone. Hyde may get arrested and killed. He may die some other way. But despair settles in on Jekyll, and he knows uh, his run is over, and he gives up. For a Christian, we feel the same weight of despair at times, the same weight of discouragement most of the time. But we've already died. It's Paul's argument. We have already died. And everything that our rebellion uh, brought down on us in our lives has been taken off of us by Jesus Christ. And he's carried these things to the cross. Uh, our hope is that he's made us new. He's able to change us. He's willing to change us. He's going to change us. It's going to take a long time. But he's going to finish the work that he's begun in us. And we have all of the massive encouragements of Romans 8 uh, coming up for us to dig into and relish in the next few weeks. Now let's pray. Father, you know how troubled we are by the war within and how hard it is for us to have faith in your promises uh, while we feel this war. And we ask that you give us hope in believing, ask that you protect us from despair. Uh, we ask that you give us encouragement in believing and the ability to sing the doxology, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.